today we're going to continue in our series of characters of the Old Testament. Today we're going to look at Isaac. So last week we looked at Abraham, this week Isaac, next week will be Jacob. So these three are obviously going to run together. They're, they're, Abraham is the beginning of the Jewish people, the chosen people. His son is Isaac, and his son is, is Jacob and Esau. We're going to focus most of our attention on Jacob, as you'll see uh, next week why. So they're all going to kind of, kind of lead together. And so we're going to pick up today where we left off last week in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, of course, is a very strange story at the beginning of it, as, you, as God asks Abraham to take his son, his only son, to Mount Moriah, go there and offer him as a sacrifice, which is completely unheard of, right? Our God does not ask us to do that, to sacrifice people, never has and he never will. Of course, we read last week the story that God's intention was never to have Abraham actually sacrifice his son, but it was a test of faith. Abraham, do you really trust me? Do you really love me? Will you give what you've been waiting for all these years, would you give that for me? And of course, Abraham says yes. But I want to go back to some of the details of that story and look at Isaac's role in it. Because Isaac is kind of the passive role in this story, but I don't actually believe that that's, that's true. Remember, Abraham was about 100 years old when Isaac's born, and so some time has passed when this happens. Isaac, as we can see in the story, is able to speak, is able to walk, is able to carry wood. So he's of at the youngest, probably eight or nine years old, and in the oldest I've read of people's theories of up to his 20s and 30s when this happens. And so he's not incapable of fighting back. If your dad's going to offer you on a pile of wood as a burnt offering, you can, if you're old enough, and your dad's over 100 years old, you can fight back. Right? I mean, Isaac can take off and run back down that mountain as fast as he can, and, and Abraham will never catch him. He's over 100 years old at this point. So I just want to read the story in light of that. That's where I want to begin today, because I think it's not just showing us Abraham's obedience, but also Isaac's. It says, Isaac spoke up. This is as their way going up the mountain, right? They've made the journey to the mountain. They're going up the mountain for the, for the sacrifice to happen. And Isaac speaks up and says this to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Tells us, one, that he's old enough to understand how sacrifice works, right? That when you sacrifice something, you sacrifice a lamb. You sacrifice an animal, a drink of some sort. Which to me, I think, lends us to believe that he's probably older than just seven or eight years old. He's probably maybe into his teens, possibly older than that. Abraham answers him in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar. That takes some time, right? In, altars in, in the ancient world are built out of stones. You collect large stones, you build them up and, as, a, as a platform. So Abraham builds an altar there, assuming, we're assuming maybe that Isaac even helps him do that, as Abraham's not exactly a spring chicken at this point, right? He's not exactly young. And after he builds that, He arranges the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reaches out his hand to to kill his son. And of course, we saw last week the angel of the Lord intervenes, right? Says, no, 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 no. Don't kill your son. There's a a ram caught in a thicket and they sacrifice that ram instead. But what I want to focus on today is Isaac's role. Isaac allows himself to go up the mountain without an offering being brought. He even asks his dad, hey, dad, this isn't normal, Right? Where's the lamb? Everything else I can see that we have for a normal offering, but where's the lamb? Abraham answers to him, God will provide that lamb. He gets up there, probably helps build 
the altar and arrange the wood, and then allows his father to tie him up. Which tells us that each and every step of this journey, when you would have those alarms going off your head going, hey, something's not right, Isaac has full and complete trust in his father. Complete trust that Abraham will do what is right and what's good. As if he doesn't, I believe Isaac is plenty old enough to fight back. To, to, to loose those ropes and to run back down that mountain as fast as he possibly can to flee from his father who is trying to, to offer him, trying to kill him. But Isaac doesn't. He stays. And so I think we see from Isaac's character as a young man that he has full and complete trust in his father, in his father Abraham. He believes that Abraham, his dad, who has waited all those years for him, will do what is best for him in the long run. And so keep that in mind as we go through this story, because Isaac is not going to be perfect, just like everybody else that we see in Scripture, except the person of Jesus, right? They're not perfect people, and that's what we're going to notice in this series from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that God chooses imperfect people to bring about his perfect message. That God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. And Isaac's going to fit into that mold. We jump ahead in the story. Isaac is now grown, and it's time for him to, get, to be married. And so Abraham doesn't want Isaac just to find a, a wife from the people they're living at. He wants him to go and find from their own people. And so Abraham sends a servant back to his homeland. Remember, what did God ask Abraham to do? From the very beginning, the call of Abraham was, I need you to go, right? I need you to go where I'm going to show you. So Abraham's not where he's from originally, but he wants his son to marry someone who is. So he sends a servant back to his homeland, to find a suitable spouse for Isaac. Now remember, we're talking thousands and thousands of years ago, so their dating was a little different than it is today, right? It's called non-existent. They didn't date. It was, hey, do you agree to this? Hey, do you agree to this? Yep, okay, you're getting married. And as you'll see here, they often didn't, sometimes, not often, but sometimes didn't even meet each other before the marriage. Now that's not typical. It wasn't typical. And the bride doesn't have to agree to this situation. So remember that. This is not as if the woman is forced into this marriage. At any point of this, she can say, say no. People sometimes make this out to be as if she has no choice. She certainly has a choice, as you'll see through this. And next week, you'll also see that, that same theme being held. But it's certainly not as, as we, though we do today. We, we, we date, and we, we, we fall in love, and we do all this cutesy stuff, right? It's cutesy. I'm a guy, so I call it cutesy, because it's... But in the ancient world, it was much more of a business transaction. It was a little colder, maybe, than, it, than what we would generally refer to as dating or, or to falling in love. And so the servant goes, and he says, he prays to God and says, God, I'm going to stay at this well. Now, of course, a well is a, is a, greeting, is a meeting place, right? It's the ancient version of a coffee shop, because everybody came to the well for water, especially women, right? They would go to the well to gather water for their home and walk that water back to their, to their village and to their homes provide for cooking and drinking. And so the servant prays to God, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to pray, I'm going to sit here, and you're going to bring, ask you to bring someone to me, bring a young woman to me, and I'm going to ask her a question, hey, will you, will you get me a drink? Now, that's a lot of work. Remember, she has to draw that water out of the well. There's no motor, there's no pulley. She's <coughs> pulling that out, and if she says yes, then I'll know we're on to something. And then I'm going to ask her, and then I'm gonna, just going to see what she do, goes from there. And if she offers to water all my camels, God, I know that's the woman that you've sent for Isaac. Now, that's a lot of work on that woman's behalf, and so that's the prayer. And Rebecca comes to the well. First one there is a servant comes there. He asks her for a drink. She draws him water and then offers to water his camels until they are completely 
completely satisfied. And that servant goes, okay, God, I know this is the woman. And they go, and he goes back to the family and asks at the family, hey, this is the situation. Would you agree to that? Yes. They ask Rebecca, Rebecca, do you agree to this? She says, yes, that's fine. And this is what happens as Rebecca is being brought back to Isaac. Genesis chapter 24. And Rebecca and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now remember, she's leaving everything she knows, her family, her village, her hometown, to go and be with, with Isaac, who she's never met. Now Isaac had come from Beer Laha Roy, where he was living in the Gev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. As he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He's my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Again, not exactly the romantic story that you guys, y'all watch on Hallmark during Valentine's Day. But this is what happened. This is how the world worked. And so they'd go from not even meeting each other to having a brief meeting and to being married. And somehow it worked. It's, I don't know how that happened. It's as if they tried or something. And it's weird. They're married. Rebecca's unable to conceive, which is, we've seen a pattern of that through this family. She's not able to have a child. And for women in the ancient world, to not be able to have a child was, was both devastating and detrimental to, to their, their well-being. Remember, this is a time in which women aren't allowed to own property. They're not allowed to, to, to work, really, outside of the home. And so if they're not able to provide, oftentimes they would, they would be divorced and they'd be left with no one to care for them. Well, there was actually a system that took care of them, but we're not going to get into that whole thing right now. Rebecca is feeling as if she hasn't fulfilled her into the duty of her job. So Isaac prays, chapter 25, says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies, when you pray, be careful how you pray, right? God answers it sometimes, and he answers it in maybe more ways than you thought. You pray for a baby, and then two of them show up. It's like, whoa, okay, hang on here. The babies jostled each other within her, poor, poor thing. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The prayer is for her to become pregnant, and she becomes pregnant with, with two babies. And that word jostled in the Hebrew actually can be translated as crushed. So that poor Rebecca is dealing with these two wild boys inside her just rolling around. I remember when Stacy was pregnant uh, with all of our children and you would see a little foot or a little hand go across the stomach and you're like, that's not right. Like This is a scene from The Exorcist. I, something's gonna, I was just worried they're just going to pop out or something. It was, it's frightening, right? And you think about poor Rebecca has two of these babies inside her just going at it. Just all over the place. And the, when God answers our prayers, he doesn't always answer it exactly how we had hoped or thought maybe it would be. But instead of one baby, there's, there's two. So when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. 
The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau, which means red, if you're wondering. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's a lot to unpack in that section. So Esau is possibly means, his name possibly means hairy, is what they probably think. That's why he's named Esau. And Jacob's name uh, probably means he grasped the heel, which is what he did, obviously, as he's coming out. What happens after that is, to me, is what's most fascinating. It says the boys are growing up, they're very different, which happens often with siblings, right? They're very different personalities, they have very different interests. Esau loves to be outside in the country and hunt, and Jacob would rather stay home and stay among the tents, possibly learning, possibly cooking, whatever he's doing, he's staying there. And what I think is detrimental to the story and what's going to add to some of the chaos we're going to see here shortly is that last verse, verse 28. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, as parents, we are tasked, we are asked to love our children equally. Now, you might have a child, or you may have had a child, had more interests that were like yours, and so, of course, you bond with that child, but the goal of parenthood is to love our children equally. And what I think Isaac and Rebekah did terribly wrong is they picked favorites. Isaac picks Esau. Obviously, he thinks he's more like him, right? Rebekah chooses Jacob. What we're going to see is that's going to lead to a whole lot of conflict, and we're going to see a lot of that next week when we talk about Jacob and Esau in greater detail. But I think what we see here is from the get-go, we have something that's gone, gone wrong and gone astray. And that's his parents picking favorites. That's a terrible idea for parents to do. Our job is to love our children no matter what, right? No matter what their personality, whether they're like us or whether they're not like us, whether their interests are like ours or whether their interests are not like ours, our job as parents is to love them the same. We don't choose or pick favorites. That's going to lead to some, some bad, bad things down the road. As we'll see the story, you'll see this week and next week what happens, and it's not, it's not good. Some time passes, and Jacob is cooking stew. Esau comes in from, from hunting, and he's famished, he's hungry. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? It's a strange story for us, those birthrights. What does that mean? So in the ancient world, not always, but often, the oldest child, just like actually it's often similar today, the oldest child was the one who was going to be tasked with taking care of the estate, the oldest son, once that father, once that patriarch passed away. And so what would happen is they'd give that oldest child a, a double portion oftentimes of the inheritance, and then they would have a, that birthright because he was charged of caring for the entire estate, the entire household, which meant mom and sisters if they weren't married. And, and so there was a, a system put in place that Esau should receive more of the inheritance essentially than Jacob because of that reason, but also with that bearing the responsibility then to care for that estate. And apparently Esau either doesn't care about that or is just a ding-dong, like who gets hungry one time and sells the, one of the most important rights that he has as the oldest son. I mean, the story is it's crazy to me. I mean, I've been hungry before, but I've not been so hungry that I'm just going to sell everything to, to eat a meal. 
Esau, who's a skilled hunter, who can kill things really easily, who's just being lazy and doesn't want to cook himself something that he could easily have killed, rushes into the tent and goes, hey, I need that now. And Jacob says, hey, all right, I'll, I'll give you the stew for your birthright. Now, I don't have to tell you guys that your birthright, when Abraham, who is a very wealthy person, is worth a lot more than a meal. But Esau, for whatever reason, lack of maturity, or I don't know what, maybe his blood sugar was really, really low. I, I don't have an idea. He hadn't had his fruit snacks. I didn't take jerky with him. Didn't have my wife to pack him snacks everywhere we go, which we do for our kids. So they eat every hour and a half, I think. He's hungry, and he needs to eat. And he gives up his birthright to Jacob in a moment for a meal. Now, this is going to add some conflict to the relationship as well. Things aren't going to go all that well after this birthright is sold. The family is going to be torn apart, essentially, because of this and some other things. Jacob said, before he gives the meal, swear to me first. So Esau swears on an oath to him that he'll give his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. He's like, dude, I don't feel sorry for you. You did it yourself. I mean, what do you want me to... I'm not going to lose a lot of Kleenex over you selling your birthright for a meal. This is what Esau does. So now we have a conflict that we saw from the womb. As these babies fought in the womb, we see this conflict between between Jacob and Esau. A conflict, I believe, that Isaac and Rebekah did not help, but they made that conflict worse by picking favorites. And so now we have two brothers who are in great conflict with one another. Time passes and a famine hits the land they're living in. This is the, not the famine that was in Abraham's time, but wandering Isaac. And so Isaac goes and leaves, and he heads to a place where he can live that's not in famine. And so it says in Genesis 26, 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That should sound familiar for those of you who were here last week. This is the promise that was given to Abraham, the covenant. What God is doing is he's renewing that covenant with Isaac, right? Saying, hey, you're the one. You're going to carry on this covenant that I formed with your father. He says, trust me during this famine. Stick close to me. Do what I ask you to do, and things will be okay. Things will be all right. And I will make your descendants as numerous as those stars in the sky, which is telling them what? If you trust me, if you listen to me, you're not going to die. It'll be okay. Right? I mean, there's famine. And in the ancient world, famine is absolutely a, a death sentence for many people. And what's happening is he says, God says, no, trust me, and it'll be okay. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. And so Isaac stayed in Gerar. And the men of that place asked him about his wife. He said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. Now, we didn't talk about this last week. But Abraham did the same thing. The same, same ha- thing happens with Abraham. He does it with Sarah. He's worried that they're going to kill him because Sarah's so beautiful, and so he does the same thing, and so it's being passed down to the next generation. So Isaac is lying, right, about who Rebekah is. 
When Isaac had been there for a long time, Ambalek, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Poor, that poor king is like, what is going on here, right? So Amalek summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Amalek said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Amalek gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Makes the same mistake his father makes. I mean, it ends up being okay, but he lies, right? And the problem we're going to see is that when we lie, when we choose to go our own way and do our own thing, chaos always ensues. What we're seeing here, and what I want you to grasp from this entire series, is that the people we read about in Scripture, the people we read about in the Old Testament, these characters that we're reading about, aren't perfect people. Some of them are actually deeply, deeply flawed. We saw that, the person of Samson, right? I, I, if, you, if you loved Samson, I still apologize because I ruined him for you because he's not a hero. We saw that with Jonah, who receives a calling from God and does what? Runs as fast as he can the other way. But what I want you to understand is that you don't have to be perfect to be called by God. And oftentimes, I believe as Christians, we think that we have to be all cleaned up first before we can do anything for God. If you're waiting for that day, it will never come. If you think you're going to be perfect one of these days on earth, your view of sin is not a good view of it because it's not going to happen. And so if you're waiting to be all cleaned up, to have every, all your ducks in a row, to be perfect before you do something for God, don't hold your breath because it's not going to happen anytime soon. What we see from these people, from Abraham, from Isaac, what we'll see from Jacob and Esau is that they are flawed, some of them deeply flawed, but they have one thing in common. When God says go, they go. That's what separates Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from the Jonah and the Samsons that we've already read about, is the obedience. Because when God speaks, they listen. And that's all God has ever asked of us is to be faithful, is to give it everything we have. Now next week we're going to read a little bit more about Isaac and we're going to get into Jacob and Esau. And you're going to see that this, this compounds, this gets worse. The story doesn't get better, right? It's going to get worse before it gets better. That Jacob and Esau are going to have some legitimate problems with one another and it almost comes to, to a confrontation that could have ended somebody's life. It all happens because we go our own way and we do our own thing. And we choose my way instead of God's way. Well, my way has never led to anything great. God's way has. So if we learn anything from Abraham, from Isaac, and what we'll see next week with Jacob and Esau, is to be faithful in any way we possibly can, knowing that we're never going to have it all together, and yet God seems to love us exactly how we are and can use us exactly how we are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read about these patriarchs of our faith, Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, people who are not perfect, people who make mistakes, some of them major mistakes, some of them mistakes that as we read them are hard to even think of how they could have made those mistakes in those moments. But God, we are people who often make mistakes as well. And yet you choose to love us, and you choose to rescue us, to redeem us, to transform us, to make us new every single day. You sent your son Jesus to this earth 
to take care of our sin, all of it, once and for all. And so, Father, we're thankful that you are a God who's quick to forgive and slow to be angry, that you love us beyond our understanding, beyond anything we can comprehend, that your mercy is extended to us always, that your grace is bigger and greater than the oceans, that you never fell, that your promises have always been and will always be good. So, Father, help us to be like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, in the sense that they were willing to heed your call and to listen to your words. Help us to do that. To, to feel and know when that Holy Spirit stirs inside of each and every one of us, when it's time to act, when it's time to speak, or when it's time to be quiet. Give us the wisdom to speak and to love those who, who don't yet know you. Help us to be a witness to them every day. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, for all that he's done for us for the debt that he has paid in full. Thank you that he suffered the cross on our behalf and that he came back to life three days later, giving us the hope of a day where we see you face to face. Where you promised that you would wipe every tear from our eyes, that there'd be a place where there's no more mourning, no crying, no pain, where the old order has been done away with. And Father, we look forward to that day. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.